You're listening to The Maniculum, pointing the finger at the Middle Ages. We bring you the choicest medieval nonsense, discuss and evaluate it, then pillage it for our own geeky purposes. Hey guys, Future Zoe here. Just wanted to let you guys know that the audio in this episode might be a little bit rougher than you're used to. This is one of our earlier recordings before we really dialed in our recording process. So bear with us. We're constantly striving to get better. And if you have any tips on how we can better improve our audio, you can always shoot us a message. Or if you want to support us in getting better equipment to make the process even easier and better for us and for you guys, you can do that on our Patreon or on our coffee link, uh, which are both on our website at themaniculumpodcast.com. Enjoy this week's episode. So we've been kind of focused on one area in our reading so far. I've brought stuff from England and from Western Europe, and you've brought two things from Ireland. So I, I thought we should expand our view a little. And so I've gone basically as far away as it's possible to go while still having medieval mean something. Ooh, okay, okay. So how far away is, is this far away? Well, this text is called The Great Tang Records on the Western Regions. Ooh, okay. Which is a travelogue, basically, made by a Buddhist monk who left his home in China to travel around Central Asia and India uh, looking for Buddhist scriptures to make copies of and bring back to China. That is so cool. Yeah. Okay. His experiences actually inspired the classic Chinese novel, The Journey West, which you may have heard of. Okay. I have heard of that one. Yeah. Which is unfortunately just a little too modern for us to use. Okay. Fair enough. What? So when was that one? Uh, that one is, I think, the 1600s. Okay. Yeah. So just, just beyond. Fair enough. Okay. So before you get into this, I have to ask a question because I feel like every medievalist has different opinions on this and it might be a bit controversial, but I feel like I should ask anyway. And that is, what do you think we can define as medieval? And the reason I ask that is because, for instance, I feel like generally speaking, if we were to take texts written in China at the same time period, like say, you know, 1320. And we looked at China at this time period. It's got its own dynasty going on. It's got its own period going on. So I wouldn't necessarily call that medieval, you know, in, you know, Africa and North America have different things going on at this time that I wouldn't classify as medieval per se. So it depends on whether you think medievalism is a a European or a, a broadly Western, right? you know, period, or whether we can push that outward. Right. And there is, in fact, some discussion on that. Okay. The rule of thumb I've been using is anything written between 500 and 1500 AD probably counts. Fair enough. But if you look up the histories of specific, like, countries and regions, they will often have a medieval period listed, and it often varies. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's, again, just rule of thumb. And there is... If you were to, and I'm going to do this right now to demonstrate, if you were to Google medieval China, you will find that uh, medieval China is a phrase used to describe the period between the fall of the Han dynasty and the fall of the Mongol dynasty. Okay. And what dates is that? Uh, That would be from 
220 CE to 1368 CE, so slightly earlier than uh, what we okay. describe as medieval yeah. Europe. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, and so I feel like that's really important to discuss is because different places geographically have different medieval periods, and that needs to be taken into account. Because their, their culture develops yeah. in, like, different ways. And so if you just, if you were to try and establish one medieval period, that wouldn't make sense for everyone, because they'd be like, well, nothing changed between... 1499 and 1500 here, so why would we make that divide here? So instead, we're going to split it here, because this is a time when our culture significantly changed. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of overlapping periods, but they're not all, that are g- generally called the medieval era, so that we can talk about, like, what was going on in the medieval era in other places. But uh, they're defined differently based on when that particular region um, can identify significant, like, social shifts. Yeah, yeah. That's great. I love that. And I also think that it's important to recognize because medieval is broadly speaking, I think most identified with the European tradition, which I I would count as is entirely valid because I think it's important that we recognize that those other cultures and and so on and so forth have different medieval periods and may call them different things like different dynasties or I I love the idea that there was this quote-unquote dark ages when the Middle East was having a big, beautiful boom of, of classical writing and everything like that, which also needs to be taken into account. So, you know, the Golden Age in the Middle East was during the very early Middle Ages in Europe that were more, quote-unquote, dark or the dark ages, which that's its own, you know, <laughs> thing to get into. But yeah, so it's very interesting what we define as medieval and how we need to couch that. Yeah, basically, the way I see it is the term medieval is very European in origin because it's talking about this is the period of time between the fall of the Roman Empire and the Renaissance. And it's called medieval because it's the Middle Age. Right. But when we look at the medieval period, we still have to look at what what was going on elsewhere in the world because... Europe wasn't as isolated as people like to imagine it was. That is that is so, so true. The Vikings, there were Vikings in Constantinople, for instance, and um, I think it was in the Hagia Sophia or something like that. It was some beautiful area in Constantinople, and they thought there were these old, like, sacred runes, and it was just Viking runes that said, like, Haraldur was here. And it's like, no, like, your people traveled. There was, there was a lot of mobility during this time. So that's, I mean, that's hugely important. And it's also important to recognize, I think, that people in the Middle Ages, the medievals, did not consider themselves living in the medieval ages. Is That's another huge thing. They weren't thinking like, oh, we're in the middle period between now and the Renaissance. It's like, no, they had no idea because the Renaissance wasn't a thing. None of those ideas had really come forward yet. So they were just going about living in the modern period insofar as they, you know, were living their day-to-day lives. So the term medieval in of itself comes as basically the Renaissance looking back on where it had come from. And that's also very, very important to note when we study this period. Yeah. But the reason that we kind of have to apply medieval period to other countries is we have to be able to say, like, okay, here is a medieval person, like, say, Marco Polo. Mm-hmm. He has, he's traveling from Venice to China. Mm-hmm. So we have to be able to talk about what was going on in medieval China. Right. Exactly. That's why I've tended to use, and again, everyone has different boundaries for how they want to use the term medieval, but I I tend to use it with, for instance, if someone is going over to Asia or the Middle East, that area, and they're writing as 
quote unquote, a Westerner in those periods, I would generally typify that as medieval. Whereas if someone like sort of what like we're looking at today, if someone was from that period in Asia coming over or living in or traveling around in Western Europe at that time, which is or Eastern Europe for that matter, then I would classify that as whatever period it would exist in, in, in Asian history, for instance, or African history. So that's typically how I couch those discussions. But again, like, like you're saying, Mac, you know, we can, we can couch it more broadly as the medieval period at large. I, I think this is a shift that's currently going on. Sadly, because of plague, Kalamazoo didn't happen this year, but... Alas. At the last couple Kalamazoo's, there's been a surge in uh, panels on medieval Ethiopia. Mm-hmm. Because that had been largely ignored, and now people are like, well, maybe we should start looking at what was going on in the medieval world. At that time. Yeah, absolutely. I, it worries me because I, I don't want to take the idea or the, the Western connection with the word medieval and thrust it upon, for instance, Ethiopia and say, like, oh, this is what's going on in medieval Ethiopia, because I think that brings in ideas of Western and medieval people. Like you think of, um, like, I don't know, a modern peasant or a knight in Ethiopia, which is not the case in of itself. So I really like to use specific language when I can. But again, having those broad ideas is also very, very helpful. So this is all basically a caveat to say, when we're speaking about medievalism and the medieval period, there's a lot that that can mean. So we have to look at it broadly, but we also have to look at it more specifically. Yes. And also, I'm sure that uh, when people in China talk about this period, they don't say medieval, they say Tang Dynasty. Right, exactly. Exactly. Calling it medieval is uh, more of a shorthand for those of us who grew up in Western society, and that's how we think of this period. Exactly. Yeah. So, with that wonderful little caveat going in... (laughs) Alright, so this is the journey that... Let me see if I can get his name right. The monk making this journey is named Xuanzang. Uh, the tones are probably all off on that one because I'm tone deaf and Chinese is a tonal language, so I'm never going to be able to say it right. Future Mac here. At this point, I was informed that Zoe's brother, whom she was staying with at the time, did in fact speak Mandarin, and so we had our first guest on the podcast. So, according to Zoe's brother, whose name I've forgotten, future Zoe may have to come in and tell me. Hey guys, Future Zoe here. My brother's name is Charlie. He's currently finishing his undergrad in neurolinguistics and is fluent in Mandarin. Well, he wouldn't say fluent. He's conversational in Mandarin. He does a fantastic job with languages. So thanks to Charlie for coming on and giving us the proper pronunciation of that name. Uh, this is how you pronounce our monk's name. Xuanzang. Thank you. And now we will return to discussion of the text, etc. Since he never actually goes far enough west to get into Europe, what I'm going to do here is I'm going to start by giving us some context of what's going on in our more familiar area at the same time. Okay. So his journey uh, starts in the 620s and ends in the 640s. Okay. Okay. Which means that in India, the Gupta Empire has dissolved into smaller states decades ago, and the major power is the Emperor Harshavardhana, 
I'm sure okay. I'm saying that one wrong, who has control over the northeastern quarter of the subcontinent. Okay. At the beginning of Xuan Tsang's journey, Constantinople is under siege by the Sassanid Persians. Okay. By the time he reaches India, the war in Constantinople has ended in a truce, just in time for the two exhausted empires to be completely blindsided by the rapid expansion of a brand new religion called Islam. Oh, wow. Okay. Muhammad himself is still alive at this time. He doesn't die until 632, so about halfway through Xuanzang's journey. Okay. So this is pretty early then. Yes. Yeah, this is the 7th century, so early medieval. Yeah. Okay, very early medieval. Yeah, perfect. By the time he's returned home, the caliphate has conquered the Sassanid Persians and taken huge chunks of Constantinople's territory in North Africa. Okay. The same year that he finally compiles the records of his travels back in China, Alexandria is conquered by the forces of Caliph Uthman. Wow. Okay. So that's the Eastern Roman Empire. The Western Roman Empire has, of course, long since fallen, and the Holy Roman Empire won't be put in place for another 150 years. <laughs> the Italian peninsula has since been conquered by the Ostrogoths, reconquered by the Eastern Romans, and is now gradually being re-reconquered by the Lombards. Okay. Further west, the Visigoths are doing quite well, and they hold on to pretty much all of the Iberian Peninsula. Okay, woohoo! Bordering those guys to the north, the Frankish kingdoms are currently under the control of the Merovingian dynasty. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And over the channel in Britain, England is split into multiple Anglo-Saxon kingdoms, while Scotland is under the control of various Celtic peoples, including both the Picts and the Dalriatans, who will uh, eventually yeah. become the Scots. Right. Through conquest. Right. Penda, the last pagan king of Mercia, is at the height of his power at this time. Wow. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. And here are some notable events that happened during his journey. In India... Brahmagupta publishes a mathematical treatise that contains the earliest known rules for computing with zero. There's a monastery built in Lindisfarne. About a century and a half later, it will be famously raided by the Vikings. Haha, <laughs> so it's just being built at this time. Yeah. That's amazing, because we always hear about its pillaging, but I've never heard about its being built before. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. It's, it's around now. It's, it's a, it was 7th century. Okay. All right, uh, Pope Honorius I dies and is replaced by Pope Severinus, who dies and, repla and is replaced by Pope John IV, who dies and is replaced by Pope Theodore I. So there's a heavy turnover that year, or those years. This is 20 years, but yeah, any anyone true. who's up on their Catholic history, that might mean something to them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So are these popes, and I have to ask this because I'm more familiar with my Roman history than my Catholic history. Are these popes being, I'm assuming they're not being killed off, are they? Like the Romans were. Because when you when you start getting into like the Borgias and the Renaissance, that, that got pretty ugly pretty quick. No, this is before uh, Pope was really a job that people killed for. Although some Popes did get killed or kidnapped because of religious disputes getting out of hand. Right. But quick turnover in this period is more due to the habit of... People not bathing. Well, no, I was going to say that. <laughs> That's pro <laughs> that probably doesn't help. Yeah. But see, in order for someone to be pope, they have to be at the height of their career, and they have to have gained a lot of respect, which means they're pretty uh, old by the time they get the job. Yeah, they're pretty old already. They die of natural causes. Fairly early, yeah. Into their popedom, their holinesses, yeah. Speaking of holiness, in Northumbria, a boy named Cuthbert is born during this time. Oh! 
He will grow up to be a monk, hermit, bishop, and general holy man at various points throughout his life, and after his death, he will become the patron saint of northern England. And long after his death, he will be put in D&D manuals as a potential deity to follow, which would probably offend him if he knew about it. <laughs> How did I not realize he's a deity? I don't know if he's in the more recent editions, but in third edition, which is the one I started with, St. Cuthbert is listed as, oh like, a lawful neutral deity. That just, that's even more amazing, given the entire 80s D&D scare, with, like, you know, devil worship, this idea of, like, oh, it's, it's, it's along the same lines. For those of you who don't know about it, in the 1980s, there was this D&D scare where parents got really worried about their kids playing D&D, especially highly religious Christian parents, uh, because you could, you know, worship other gods and play as these characters, and they thought it was this occult idea. And so the fact that one of the deities you could follow is a, you know, Catholic saint, it, that's just amazing. It's sort of, it's like the whole Harry Potter thing, where I've known several people who were not allowed to read Harry Potter because it contained magic in it. But on Harry's parents' graves, JK almost put a Bible verse on the headstone, but she thought it would be too heavy and too heavy-handed an allegory and too obvious, so she decided not to. So I always think it's very interesting when, you know, people take fantasy and magic and they don't think about where that comes from and just think about its, you know, spooky, scary overtones. Yeah, I was always kind of thrown by the way that Harry Potter was so unpopular in, like, the, the serious Christian community, because JK's actually pretty conservative. Yeah, you know, it's especially when she was initially writing those books. I mean, they're very wholesome books. You know, it's talking about found family and, you know, taking care of one another. And I mean, the Weasleys are basically Catholics. They're a big, they're a big Catholic family. And that's very, very deliberate. And, you know, in, in the books, they, they mention celebrating Christmas every year. Like, they even make yeah. a big deal about it. Like, clearly, yeah. these are not anti-Christian books. If anything, they're uncomfortably pro-Christian, because I don't think there are any Jewish characters. Yeah, yeah, Roland, yeah, she's got she's got an interesting take on diversity and then sort of retconning diversity in her, in her stories, which... Also, exactly one Eastern Asian character who has a name <laughs> that doesn't make any sense because it's two surnames. Oh, no. Is that Cho? Cho Chang, yeah. Those are both oh, last names. Oh, no. Yikes. I, I don't know a lot about Chinese nomenclature, but I've heard people who do know about, like, Eastern e Asian culture say, no, that, that no one would it have that name. Bad. Wow. Oh, wow. Well, you know, there were the Patils. Yeah. That is why I but specified Eastern Asian. Is Eastern there, Asian, yeah. yeah Padman well, Parvati. Well, yeah, she does. She does need to, yeah. But, but we, you know, we digress. Death of the author is important. I think that's a highly important yeah, especially in these books, so that we can read them without worrying about her recent transphobic nonsense. Future Mac here. Since we recorded this, Rowling has come out with more and worse transphobic nonsense, so I just wanted to chime in and disagree with my past self. Fuck her. Fuck her books. I'm out. The opinions of Mac do not necessarily represent the opinions of Zoe. She can add a future Zoe if she wants. Otherwise, this will stand on its own as me badmouthing someone that most of my audience probably likes better than me. Yeah, that's a good call publicity-wise, right? Right. Anyway, back to more fun things. Yeah, definitely that. Or the whole cash grabs with the later films, but... 
I know. I digress. Fairly, but yes. <laughs> All right. Anyway, other things that are happening during this journey. The Emperor Heraclius, who was famous for his uh, heroic efforts in war, dies in Constantinople. He is briefly replaced by his two sons, Heraclonus and Constantine III. Those two are dead within a year and replaced by Heraclius's 10-year-old grandson, Constans II. That's who I want on the throne. Yeah. I mean, he did okay. Isidore of Seville, who one day will have to get his own series of episodes from us, dies Yay! during this time. <laughs> this is the end of his period of activity. Some thousand years, thousand plus years later, he will be unofficially and rightfully named the patron saint of the internet. Yes. Uh, and finally, linking back to what's going on uh, in China with what's going on in Europe, Two groups of envoys from medieval Europe arrive in China at this time, not related to each other. A trade envoy from Constantinople and the first Christian missionaries. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. And I know they don't know about each other because these particular Christian missionaries would be considered heretics in Constantinople because of the <laughs> ongoing semantic squabbles that kind of characterized that time. Okay. All right. You know, they probably thought God had the wrong number of natures or something. Yeah, yeah. Or like, did he actually come back in flesh or was it spirit and so on and so forth? Or is, is Jesus from God or is he of God? Of God. What does begotten really mean? Exactly. All that nonsense. Mm-hmm. All right. So that's context. Okay. So now that we've couched the broad continent. I have lots of tabs, so I'm not going to get through this today. I'll come back to it another time if, it's, if it turns out to be interesting. Yes. Sounds good. We can make it a multi-part series. Yeah. Like uh, the Gesta Romanorum. There's, there's more. We can always come back. Yes. All right. So one of the first places he mentions is the kingdom of Kuche. I don't know how to say this. It's spelled K-U-C-H-E with a hat. <laughs> with the triangle over the... Yeah, I guess it is Circumflex. a Circumflex. That's the one I'm looking for. Okay. I wanted to call but it a carrot, but language. I'm like, that's not right. <laughs> Wait, no, no. Circumflex is the... Hatchek. No, oh. that's the other way around. Yeah, it's probably a Circumflex. All of these kingdom names have been transliterated and recontextualized by the, like, 19th century translators who are trying to figure out where these places are. So, limited connection to what Xuanzang, uh, I'm still surely getting that wrong, actually called it, but I was able to find out where this place is. Ooh, okay. It is... Now actually part of China, it's located in that really huge western province, like stuck on the edge. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it wasn't part of China yet when he got there, but it is now. It is now. Okay. So here's something that he says about the history of this place. <laughs> to the north of a city on the eastern borders of the country, in front of a deva temple... There's a great dragon lake. I'm already excited. <laughs> I really <laughs> wish the listeners could see your faces. Oh, there's a great dragon lake. The dragons changing their form couple with mares. Oh, okay. I was not expecting that. The offspring is a wild species of horse, the dragon horse, difficult to tame and of a fierce nature. Okay, that is, a, that is a story I have never heard before. The breed of these dragon horses became docile. This country consequently became famous for its many excellent horses. Former records of this country say, in late times, there was a king called Goldflower. I'm sure that this is just 
the translator getting overzealous in his translation and translating a proper name. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So wait, what was his name? Or his overzealous translation name? Goldflower. Goldflower. Okay. No relation to Goldberry in Lord of the Rings. Probably not. <laughs> but anyway, Goldflower exhibited rare intelligence in the doctrines of religion. And because of this, he was able to yoke the dragons to his chariot. Ooh. When the king wished to disappear, he touched the ears of the dragons with his whip. And forthwith, he became invisible. Okay. From very early time until now... There have been no wells in the town, so the inhabitants have become accustomed to get water from the Dragon Lake. On these occasions, the dragons... Wanna guess? Do they eat them? No. Because they're eastern dragons, so that's not the tradition. Oh wait, do they couple with the people? On these occasions, the dragons changing themselves into the likeness of men had intercourse with the women. Their children, when born, were powerful and courageous and swift of foot as the horse. I, I feel like Avatar The Last Airbender really missed out on an opportunity here to have, like, dragon people, dragon kids. Thus gradually corrupting themselves, the men all became of the dragon breed, and relying on their strength, they became rebellious and disobedient to the royal authority. Wow, why is that a corruption? Well, I guess it's, they're less human. That's true. That's true. Interesting. Then the king, forming an alliance with the Turks, probably not the same Turks that we're dealing with over in Europe, but part of the same, like, culture group, because it does spread through a lot of, like, Central Asia, massacred the men of the city. Young and old, all were destroyed, so that there was no remnant left. The city is now a waste and uninhabited. Aw, sad days. Now, there's some crazy stuff that I found looking into what this place is now. Do tell. I'm very excited. All right. So the stuff that kind of gives this some interesting context is the language spoken in this area in like the late antiquity, early medieval period Mm -hmm. was Tocharian B. Have you heard of Tocharian B? I have not. Probably saying it wrong. It's T-O-C-H-A-R-I-A-N. Okay. It is well known because it is the easternmost Indo-European language. Ooh, okay. And it got a lot of attention over the course of the 20th century by philologists and those people because it's a Kentum language. Okay. Do you know? I don't. Okay. If you do know stuff, I'm going to ask you to do the explaining for the listener so I don't talk so much. Okay, okay. No, I'm not familiar with this. All right, so uh, one of the earliest sound changes in the development of the Indo-European languages was the split between Kentum languages and Satim languages. Kentum and Satim are uh, two different words for meaning 100. Kentum being okay. the Latin and Satim being, I think, Sanskrit. That makes sense. And for a long time, people were like, okay, clearly like the Eastern dialects became the Satim languages and the Western dialects became the Kentum languages. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But Tocharian B, or Tocher- all the Tocharian languages, there are three, A, B, and C. Uh, are Kentum languages, despite being the easternmost. Ooh, okay, that's interesting. Right, which means either the Satim languages were actually uh, an innovation by the central provinces, and all of the outskirts were Kentum languages, and we just have lost the ones further east, or people who spoke the Tocharian languages had traveled from a western area all the way to China, basically. Wow. 
That's fascinating. Yeah. And I mean, both are probable, really. Yeah. Either one could work. Yeah. Because the Indo-Europeans did travel a lot. That's why there are so many Indo-European languages over such a large... Body. Yeah, such a large area. Okay. Interesting. And the reason that this kind of fits with this is... Do you know why the Indo-Europeans were so successful in their travel and conquest? They had a they had a bit of technology that not everyone else had a had a handle on at the time. Stirrups? Basically, yeah. They were ex they were expert horsemen. They had horses and chariots and other people couldn't deal with it. Yeah, they didn't figure out stirrups. Like that's the greatest military innovation of all time is the stirrup. Yeah. And so that kind of gives a new context to this bit about dragon horses and people who are corrupt but dangerous. Oh, I was wondering about this. Would these people be in any relation to the Huns? Because they were expert horsemen themselves. It is unclear where the Huns came from, as far as I know. Okay, interesting. Interesting. If anyone out there knows different, please tell me. But to my knowledge, uh, the origins of the Huns are pretty confused, and no one has managed to settle the matter. Okay, fair enough. So that's some stuff. Dragon people. We've yeah, we've covered the dragon horses and the rebellious dragon people. So this is also in the same country. The old records say a former king of this country worshipped the three precious ones. Uh, according to the footnote, the three precious ones are Buddha, the law, and the community. Ah. Wishing to pay homage to the sacred relics of the outer world, he entrusted the affairs of the empire to his younger brother on the mother's side. The younger brother, having received such orders... I'm, I'm, tra- I'm tracking the younger brother on the mother's side. I'm, I'm, I'm following that one. They might be half-siblings. Okay, okay. Now, the younger brother makes an unusual decision upon receiving this orders. Uh, these orders. You want to take a guess? No, go for it. Just tell me. The younger brother, having received such orders, mutilated himself in order to prevent any evil risings of passion. Oh, wow. So, like... He wanted to make sure that he didn't corrupt himself absolutely or something when he had that power? Yeah, and apparently the uh, natural decision is what I can only interpret as self-castration. Oh, wow. That's an interesting choice. Yes. I'm just thinking about it because this is going to sound very strange to our listeners who are not already familiar with this idea, but the idea of someone taking power or having power and trying to prevent someone else from taking that power, like, for instance, say you overthrow a king in Irish tradition, because that is what I'm most recently familiar with, it would be tradition, or at least it would be the way of doing things, the old way of doing things, was to cut off the other king's nipples. That was not where I expected that sentence to end. Yeah, yeah. Because, again, we have this idea of, you know, the sovereignty goddess and the goddess of the land, and if the king embodies the land, then basically the nation sucks on his teat, effectively. So when you have that sort of metaphor, if you want to keep someone from being able to ever have that power, you cut off the symbolic way of having kingship, which is to say, nibbles, in this case. I wonder if that's in line. Like, well, if you cannot retain power or you can't usurp, you know, your father, if you're, you've castrated yourself. This idea that the king needs to be whole in some, in some sense. I'll bet you it's the same idea. I've seen similar ideas, like, through a lot of uh, other places in Europe, like in the Anglo-Saxons used to blind people for the same reason. Can't have a blind king. Yeah. 
Yeah. You probably could now, but back then, I, I think fighting ability was too important to, to risk someone with a handicap having the kingship. Mm-hmm. A lot of places in Europe did the blinding thing, actually. The Eastern Roman Empire would cut off people's noses. Yes, that's right. I remember that one. Yeah. Byzantines. And, of course, there was that whole thing in, like, huge chunks of Eastern Europe, Western Asia, where all the civil service was run by eunuchs because you can't seize power if you can't have children. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, basically, it's it's sort of the motif that the king needs to be whole in some sense. So that does make a lot of historical sense, that if you want to show your devotion to whoever is the king, you mutilate yourself in such a way that you're showing, I will not keep this power from you. I think it's interesting how symbolic the Irish one is. All the other examples, like you're either taking away a function mm-hmm. or it, with the nose thing, you can probably still smell in, in some sense, but it's really obvious. Like, you can't hide yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. Or, like, if you cut off someone's, you know, dick, you're taking away their manhood, effectively, and you gotta have a man to be king, is the traditional, you know, way of thinking. Well, also, he can't produce heirs, which I think is the yeah. the, the function. That's also that, too. <laughs> yeah. But no, yeah, it's, it's sort of a, it's a stranger sort of notion of keeping someone from sovereignty is it's almost a more feminine ideal since men don't lactate. They're not actually suckling the nation, but it's more metaphorical, metaphysical in that sense. Yeah, it's a very, it's a very strange idea. I mean, from everything I've heard, the ancient Celts uh, gave a lot more space in their society for women than we're used to thinking of uh, medieval and ancient cultures doing. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. Okay, so... We've got this son. Yes, and he puts his parts in a box and gives the box to the king. Okay, that's also highly symbolic. What is this? inquired the king, having not opened it yet. Oh no. In reply, he said, On the day of your majesty's return home, I pray you open it and see. Oh, wow. It is really a shame that the listeners can't see the faces you're making. I, I'm a very expressive individual. That's just... First off, the... like. How long is he going to be gone? Because that's going to change a lot. Maybe it's uh, salted. Ooh. Or mummified? Can you mummify that? I'm sure you can. Ah. Shout out to the uh, Icelandic Penis Museum, by the way, since we're talking about this. They've got some... Well, it's actually very interesting, and I have been. It was on my bucket list for a long time. And let me just say, like, blue whales have very large penises. I think I've seen a picture of that place that did feature the whale penis. Yes. Yeah. No, it's actually very interesting. It's very scientifically done. You learn a lot. And so if anyone is ever going to Iceland, I highly recommend putting that on your list. Just from a historical, wacky, weird perspective. It's very, very fun. And there's a guided audio tour. So... I love that that was on your bucket list. It's been on my bucket list for a long time. I was like, this is so weird that I just have to do it. Fair. Yeah. So if you want to know how to preserve a penis, street smarts, if you want to, <laughs> if you want to know how to do that, uh, check out the Icelandic Penis Museum because <laughs> they will tell you how. The king gave the casket to the manager of his affairs. I assume this is some kind of civil servant or courtier that just has a very non-specific title. Fair enough. Who entrusted the casket to a portion of the king's bodyguard to keep. And now, in the end, there were certain mischief-making people who said, 
the king's deputy, i.e. His, his brother, in his absence, has been debauching himself in the inner rooms of the women. Oh, okay. And now he's got to prove that he's not. I like this. The king hearing this was very angry and would have subjected his brother to cruel punishment. The brother said, I dare not flee from punishment, but I pray you open the golden casket. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> like, that's gotta be the greatest euphemism ever. The golden casket. Oh, no. Yeah, just just keep that in the back of your mind in case you need to be inappropriately seductive at any point. Yeah, there you go. You wanna oh, open the golden casket? <laughs> Well, then you have to explain the entire story that goes along with it. But hey, you know, the option's there. It's a great way to start up a conversation. Okay, so, opening the casket. Yes, the king accordingly opened it and saw that it contained a mutilated member. I'm sure it wasn't quite that circumspect, but again, this is another Victorian translation. Of course. Seeing it, he said, what strange thing is this? (laughs) And what does it signify? (laughs) He doesn't know. Oh, no. Replying, the brother said, Formerly, when the king proposed to go abroad, he ordered me to undertake the affairs of the government. Fearing the slanderous reports that might arise, I mutilated myself. Oh, my gosh. You now have the proof of my foresight. Let the king look benignly upon me. Can we get this happening for, like, members of Congress, please? Yes. That would be excellent. That would get rid of all the allegations. You know, I've always thought that, like, we've got to do something to make political power less attractive, because it's it's attracting too many terrible people. That's true. Interesting. Interesting. Use your votes, people. That's all I'm saying. I've heard people suggest that uh, politicians should only get one term, and then at the end of it, they're, like, thrown in the sea or something. To keep them from, like, constantly angling for re-election and consolidating power. Like, no, you get one and then you're gone. And then you're gone. Amazing. Amazing. That's one way of doing it. Yeah. You know, I feel like if we went back to some medieval methods, we, we might have better people in office. If it weren't so appetizing. I would be on board for changing the presidency into a kind of sacral kingship, where if the land starts doing poorly, we assume we need to kill the king and get a new one. That is definitely an option. Like... Yeah. We've got a plague. Better kill the king. (laughs) Oh, no. Oh, man. Yeah, there's a lot of omens going about this year. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of omens. Okay. That's amazing. He's like, that's that's such a unique way of keeping yourself pure in a political position. You're like, I know that people are going to talk crap about me. So before I even get the position, I will preemptively get rid of any accusations that could possibly occur. I feel like there's some context missing about, like, the number and quality of the concubines that are hanging around in this court, because clearly, like, this is what everyone assumes is going to happen is is if you get power, you will get involved with the concubines. Well, that's generally, as far as I've read, that is generally how a lot of the dynasties worked. That was a major theme in... I think it's Pearl S. Buck's novel, Good Earth. I've heard of it. I haven't read it. Yeah, it's a fascinating book, and it is a fiction, but it's very, very well done. And it's about how this farmer guy ends up making it, and he has wealth and does end up getting in with a lot of the concubines. And I've I've done some reading, and I, 
and I know a lot of the historical films that have been done on this talking about the Chinese court talk a lot about how concubines were sort of just the norm. Yeah, and that might depend on the dynasty. Again, this is not medieval Asia is not my field of expertise, but that is my general cursory knowledge of how the dynasties generally worked. But feel free to, you know, write us an email, let us know, correct me, because this is not my area. (laughs) After this exchange, the king was filled with the deepest reverence and strangely moved with affection. In consequence, he permitted him, i.e. his brother, free ingress and egress throughout his palace. Basically, he is now allowed to visit the, what Westerners would call the harem. Because I mean, there's no reason for him not to. He's like, yep, okay, fine. You know what? You can go wherever. I can trust you. Right, right, exactly. There's a little temptation going on, I guess. After this, it happened that the younger brother, going abroad, met, by the way, a, a herdsman who was arranging to geld 500 oxen. Upon seeing this, he gave himself to reflection, and taking himself as an example of what they were to suffer, he was moved with increased compassion and said, Are not my present sufferings or my present mutilated form, the consequence of my conduct in some former condition of life. Because, you know, reincarnation and karma. Uh... Yeah, this, this is a Buddhist kingdom. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He forthwith desired with money and precious jewels to redeem this herd of oxen. In consequence of this act of love, he recovered by degrees from mutilation, and on this account... <laughs> oh, wow. It's like a starfish. <laughs> Yes. Yes, he's just like a star. <laughs> yeah, sorry, I feel like I just ruined that for you. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> the starfish king. <laughs> right. <laughs> See, now it's time we had a camera on your face, because that's just great. Oh man. <clears throat> he recovered by degrees from mutilation, and on this account, he ceased to enter the apartments of the women. Wow, so he's still got his integrity. I like this guy. Yeah, he's, he's very serious about his virtue, I, I, I guess. Yeah! The king, filled with wonder, asked him the reason of this, and having heard the matter from beginning to end, looked on him as a, and this is apparently a uh, phrase that doesn't translate well, but uh, the one suggested by the Victorian translator is prodigy. Like someone who is, in some way, because of holiness or magic, kind of beyond normal yeah. people. Yeah, like, um, a, not a yogi. There's a particular word for it. I'm thinking of Sita, which is S-I-D-D-H-A, which is, it comes from Sanskrit. It means a perfected one. And it's most, the term is most widely used in Indian religions and culture, according to Wikipedia. So it has more to do with Hinduism, Jainism, but might have something to do with Buddhism. But at least that's, I think that's another term that could work. There's a lot of kind of cultural exchange between those groups. Yeah, that's true. So he's a a perfected one, a prodigy. I'm not sure if that's the word that's being translated here, because one, I think it's a Chinese word. Right, it would be. And two, a lot of the uh, Indian terms that come up in regards to religion are just left untranslated in this one. Ooh, interesting. I like when they do that. I think that's, it keeps the integrity of the text. He was looked on as a prodigy, and from this circumstance, the convent took its name. I'm not sure what the deal is with this place. It is the apartments of the women. It is a harem. It is a convent. Somehow all at once. 
That's so interesting. I feel like this might be just the translator being unsure how to describe this place. That's valid, but I think that's a really good idea for a D&D game. A place that's both a harem and a convent? Yes. Oh, wait, I think, I, I think I've done that. Because I, I do have a culture where there is, there's a goddess of love and fertility, and part of that is having priestesses who do serve that role. So, that is doable. I mean, there's no reason that uh, holy people have to be chaste if you're if, yeah. they're, if they're not Christian. Yeah, it's a very it's a very Christian idea. If you have a polytheistic society, there's nothing stopping you from going like, yeah, none of these these gods don't all require chastity. That's your Eurocentric thinking. Also, I think uh, Mesopotamia used to have temple prostitutes. Yeah, I think, and some of the Roman cults did for sure. All right, so it's yeah. It just sounds weird because we're used to convent and harem being basically opposites. Yes. Anyway, that convent took its name because he built it to honor the conduct of his brother and perpetuate his name. Yeah. See, but that's but that's interesting because his brother is talking about, or at least embodying virtue of not engaging in that behavior. So I wonder if it went, and this this is just me going off, this is not historical in any sense, but I wonder if it's a harem that became a convent due to his action. Ah, that would make sense. Yeah, that would be interesting. But again, it might just as well be a Victorian translation issue. I'm not sure if Buddhism has equivalents to convents. I mean, I guess they have monks, which means they... They do have nuns. They must have some sort of equivalent. Uh, They probably call it something different, but like a place where nuns live together. Yeah, they are chaste, are they not? I have no idea. In Buddhism? I thought they were. Uh, They might be, because that probably counts as a worldly desire. Yeah, I would have thought that they were... History and development, monastic life. Oh, here we go. Uh, celibacy is of primary importance in monastic discipline, seeing being seen as a preeminent factor in separating the life of a monastic from that of a householder or, you know, layperson. Interesting. Yeah, so it does, yeah, it does count in Buddhism. All right, so it's part of their overall, like, rejection of, of the world. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, yeah. Let's go ahead and, co- and say it's a convent now. Okay. Taking a little historical license there. But... Named after this person who doesn't get a name, which is not helpful. Aw, I'm calling him the Starfish King. All right, named after the Starfish King. <laughs> GMs, if you want to put a convent of the Starfish King into your campaign world, please do. do. Yes, and let us know. And please tell us if you need to tell the story behind the Starfish King, because I would love to see how your players react to that. <laughs> All right. So a couple of things <laughs> I've got here are, you'll, you'll notice I have different uh, colored tabs in my book. Ooh, lots of tabs. Yes. The pink ones are bits of stories and folklore, like the ones I've just read. This is an orange one, which is a description of a place that I find interesting. Ooh, okay. Yes. All right. So he's now out of Kucha. And into Aksu, which is also in that same, like, giant province on the west of China now, but at the time was not part of it. Okay. I don't think I have anything as interesting as the Tokarians for this place, but it's basically, it was a city-state of some power at the time, and now it's just uh, the largest city in its province. Okay, good to know. We don't get a whole lot of description of the actual place, it just says they're a lot like the people in Kucha, because they're right next to each other, but... Going 300 li, which is a unit of measurement. That's in Sun Tzu as well. That's in The Art of War. I recognize that one because I just finished reading that. I know it because it is a good word to know for Scrabble. Ooh, that's true. 
Oh, so you play that you can use foreign words in Scrabble? It's uh, in the OED. Is it? Yeah, we borrowed it. Oh, yeah, that's true, I guess. Interesting. It's not even italicized in this uh, text. It's just used as like... Oh, it's just used. Interesting. Okay, I'll take it. One of my exes and I did used to play that you could uh, use modern English, old English, Spanish, or Latin all in the same Scrabble game. That is amazing. I want to use any... See, the problem with using any iteration of English in a Scrabble game is that there are so many ways to spell Middle English words is that it doesn't even matter. You can just throw a letter in. You're like, no, there's technically a way to spell it like that. It's like, no, no, throw that one out. I think the the way to deal with that is to say it has to be like whatever spelling the head word is in the official dictionary. There you go. Yeah, you can use the, the Middle English compendium. That's a good resource. You also, if you really want to get serious, you need to make some extra tiles. Yeah. Yeah. Ooh, that's a good idea, too. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure it's been done before. I'm, I'm positive that Scrabble is not only played in English. No, definitely not. But I mean, how many would have like a thorn or an F? I mean, Icelandic. That's true. And I bet uh, Eastern European versions have to have the... Um, accents? Yeah, the accents and the yeah. hot checks and stuff, because those are different That'd letters. interesting. Make your own Scrabble tiles. That's a good way to do it. Anyway, 300 li to the northwest of Aksu, crossing a stony desert, we come to the Ice Mountain. Ooh. This is, in fact, the northern plateau of the Songling Range. Don't know. We are heading towards the Himalayas, though, so there are just lots of mountains everywhere. Okay. Okay, yeah. And from this point, the waters mostly have an eastern flow. Both hills and valleys are filled with snow piles, and it freezes both in spring and summer. If it should thaw for a time, the ice soon forms again. The roads are steep and dangerous, the cold wind is extremely biting, and frequently fierce dragons impede and molest travelers with their inflictions. I love that there's dragons! I get so excited! Oh man, I just love dragons. I'm all about the dragons. Oh wow. I'm sorry. I just, I love dragons so much. Basically, if you're going to go into these mountains, you're going to have a bad time, but you might see a dragon. There are precautions. Yes. Those who travel this road should not wear red garments, nor carry loud sounding calabashes. Okay, what is a calabash? It's like a gourd that you use to uh, drink from. Oh, that would make sense. Like they clonk, they clonk against it things and then, yeah. Okay, that makes sense. That is a reasonable precaution. The least forgetfulness of these precautions entails certain misfortune. A violent wind suddenly rises with storms of flying sand and gravel. Those who encounter them, sinking through exhaustion, are almost sure to die. Oh, wow. Okay, so there's sand as well. That apparently attacks people who wear red. Interesting. Going 400 li or so more, we come to the Great Sing Lake. This lake is about 1,000 li in circuit, extended from east to west and narrow from north to south. On all sides, it is enclosed by mountains, and various streams empty themselves into it and are lost. The color of the water is a bluish black. Its taste is bitter and salt. The waves of this lake roll along tumultuously as they expend themselves on the shores. Dragons and fishes inhabit it together. At More dragons! <laughs> at certain portentous occasions, scaly monsters rise to the surface, on which travelers passing by put up their prayers for good fortune. Oh! This is amazing! So there's bad dragons and good dragons. Although the water animals are numerous, no one dares to catch them by fishing. Yeah, that's probably a good idea. What is this called? The, the Great what lake? 
Sing Lake, T-S-I-N-G. Interesting. I did not look up if there is still a Sing Lake or if this or if they have any idea what this place is. I'm looking on Google Maps now and I can't find it, but there is there are a bunch of lakes on the north side of the Himalayas. That'd be about the right area. Yeah, there's a bunch of them though. So I don't know which one it would be. But anyway, does it say what they use for good luck? If they just offer prayers? I have no idea. Um, it might be prayers. It might have some kind of material component. Mm-hmm. I don't know a whole lot about ancient Buddhism. I'm trying to think of the the Tibetan prayer flags are primarily Buddhist. Yeah. In tradition. So I wonder if they offer prayer flags or if they just literally offer prayers. I mean, both are seem reasonable to me. Right. But Tibetan Buddhism is kind of its own thing also. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Like, as, as I understand the divisions of Buddhism, the in this text, they talk about the little vehicle, which is like more orthodox Buddhism, and the great vehicle, which is a more abstracted, mystical kind of Buddhism. Like, it's more focused on the world beyond. Right. And apparently, uh, Tibetan Buddhism is based on a third branch that comes after this text was written that is still more abstract. And- oh, interesting. So this is an earlier form. Okay, cool. Good to know. Anyway, this next place happens in the kingdom of Kapisa. Kapisa? Kapisa? K-A-P-I-S-A. Or actually, there's a little thing over the S, so it might be Kapisha. Pisha. Hmm. Okay. But it's an acute, not like a Hachek, so I don't know if that means you want to say it as an S or not. But regardless, um, this means we finally left the area that's modern-day China. We're now in what's modern-day Afghanistan. 30 li to the southeast of the capital, we arrive at the convent of Rahula. Rahula. Sorry, I just like that name. It's uh, R-A with a hat, H-U-L-A. Huh, okay. By its side is a stupa about 100 feet in height. These come up a lot once we start going into like more and more historically Buddhist areas. Uh, the stupas are basically a cross between a shrine and a reliquary. Ooh, okay. How do you spell it? S-T-U-P-A. And the U has a hat slash circumflex. Okay. Okay. Oh, wow, they're beautiful. On sacred days, this building, the stupa, reflects a brilliant light above the cupola from between the, or cupula, or however you say that word. From between the interstices of the stone, there exudes a black-scented oil, whilst in the quiet night may be heard the sounds of music. According to tradition, this stupa was formerly built by Rahula, a great minister of this country. Having completed this work of merit, he saw in a night dream, I like that it's a night dream specifically. Yeah, as opposed to a daydream, like a vision. That's cool. A man who said to him, this stupa you built, has no sacred relic in it as yet. Tomorrow, when they come to offer, you must make your request to the king for the offering brought. Interesting. So you would build it before having a relic for it. Apparently that that is done sometimes. Other bits in this book have people, like, getting a hold of a relic and going, well, we need to build a stupa for this. Yeah, but okay. I guess it goes both ways. Yeah. Makes sense. On the morrow, entering the royal court, he pressed his claim and said, your unworthy subject ventures to make a request. The king replied, And what does my lord require? Answering, he said, That your majesty would be pleased to favor me by conferring on me the first offering made this day. The king replied, I consent. Rahula on this went forth and stood at the palace gate. Looking at all who came towards the spot, suddenly he beheld a man holding in his hand a relic casket. The great minister said, Is it... is it a golden casket? (laughs) (laughs) 
That would be fantastic. That would be amazing. Did you know, actually, that there's a couple relics that we have of Christ, and one of them is his umbilical cord, and another one is his foreskin. I did know that. What? It does need to be widely known. Yeah, because those parts didn't offend. Yes. So they're still around somewhere. So somewhere there is going, there's a reliquary of the Savior's foreskin somewhere. The other fun part, and I'm not sure how true this is anymore, but I've heard that at one point, since no one could agree on where what had happened to the foreskin, there were multiple places claiming to have it. Future Mac here. In the past, there have indeed been multiple places claiming to have Jesus' foreskin. This gradually became less common as some were discounted or destroyed or lost over the course of, you know, the world. But up until the 1980s, there was still a holy foreskin venerated in a town in Italy that had formerly been officially approved by the Catholic Church, though the Church had later decided they wanted to distance themselves from the whole thing because it seemed unseemly. In 1983, the last supposed foreskin of Jesus was stolen. And there is a theory that I found discussed by David Farley, who has written a book about this relic called An Irreverent Curiosity, that the Vatican arranged the theft so people would stop talking about Jesus's dick. I felt you all needed to know that. Thank you. Oh, man. Oh, wow. That's amazing. I know some, I don't remember where, but apparently Mary's breast milk is also somewhere. <laughs> I really hope it's somewhere airtight because milk that old yeah. is going to be awful. Ooh, yeah. But anyway, yeah, so there are, I'm just saying that there are very strange reliquaries around, so. There are, that's true. In any case. He's carrying a casket. Yes. The great minister said, What is your will? What have you to offer? He replied, Some relics of Buddha. And he doesn't specify, so it might be his foreskin. Okay. Well, who knows? Just some relics of Buddha. Unspecified. Asterisk. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Apparently, relics of Buddha are very spread out. Over and over in this text, we get relics of Buddha, and it's often something like one tooth. It's like they're very distributed. That's interesting. You sort of wonder how those, I mean, it, you sort of wonder how those relics get into different places, but at the same time, they travel widely. Well, it's guys yeah. like this who, like, put them in caskets and bring them to uh, kings to get their favor. Yeah. The minister answered, I will protect them for you, the relics. I will first go and tell the king. Rahula, fearing lest the king, on account of the great value of the relics, because they're from actual Buddha, not from one of his disciples, who also also have their relics distributed, uh, should repent him of his former promise, went quickly to the Sankarama, uh, that's S-A-N with a dot, G-H-A with a hat, R-A with a hat, M-A. Ooh, okay. No idea how to say that. Okay, but there you go. For listeners, it has been spelled out, so you can Google it. And mounted the stupa. By the power of his great faith, the stone cupola opened itself, and then he placed the relics therein. This being done, he was quickly coming out, 
when he caught the hem of his garment in the stone. The king sent to pursue him, but by the time the messengers arrived at the stupa, the stones had closed over him. Oh, no. And this is the reason why a black oily substance exudes from the crevices of the building. Oh, wow. He wasn't holy enough. He's not preserved as a relic. He just oozes out of it. He's squished. Well, that's a... That's one way to go. Ooh, I suppose they couldn't open it back up again. No, I don't think it's built to be opened again. I think it's just, like, almost a solid, like, dome of stone. And it opens for him because he's holy, but then he gets stuck in it. Oh, buddy. He made the ultimate sacrifice. So, yes, that is what happened. I like that there's probably some actual historical accuracy behind black goo coming out of this thing at some point. Like, there's got to be a, a, a folk tale about, about that. There's another interesting place in this area, which I will also tell you about. Yes. To the south of the city, 40 li or so, we come to the town of Svetavaras. That seems almost Russian. Lots of people came to Afghanistan. It might be. Yeah. Huh. Uh, but, again, all the names I'm giving you are the translators trying to f- figure out what these places are, so it might not be the same name they had back then. There is also an attempt to transliterate the uh, version that Xuan Sang gave, which is CP Tofa La Se. Huh. Okay. This is really hard to put these non-Chinese words into Chinese characters. Yeah, yeah interesting. The way it's printed here is it's always a string of monosyllables with hyphens between to say, like, he used the character that sounds like C, he used the character that sounds like P. Interesting. Okay, cool. It's it's cool that they kept that, even though it's difficult to do. Yes. Huh. In the case of earthquakes, and even when the tops of the mountains fall, there is no commotion around this city. 30 li or so to the south of the town of Svetovaras, we come to a mountain called Aruna. The crags and precipices of this mountain are of a vast height. Its caverns and valleys are dark and deep. Each year, the peak increases in height several hundred feet until it approaches the height of Mount Sunagir in the kingdom of Salkuta. Wait, 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 wait. So the mountain keeps rising up, but the ground isn't moving. Like it's not being shaken by earthquakes. No, there are earthquakes, but they don't affect the town. Oh, okay. Interesting. Okay, okay, okay. So this is a highly volcanic, tectonic area, but the town has always been okay. Okay, okay, that makes more sense. I was trying to figure out how this mountain was moving if there's nothing else going on. But when this uh, mountain approaches the height of another mountain, Sunagir, in the kingdom of Saukuta, then when it thus faces it, suddenly it falls down again. Huh, okay. I have heard this story in neighboring countries. When first the heavenly spirit Suna came from far to this mountain desiring to rest, the spirit of the mountain affrighted, shook the surrounding valleys. The heavenly spirit said, Because you have no wish to entertain me, therefore this tumult and confusion. If you had but entertained me for a little while, I should have conferred on you great riches and treasure. But now I go to Sukucha, to the mountain Sunahilo. Those are the transliterations of the ones that uh, he gave actual locations for earlier. Mm -hmm. And I will visit it every year. On these occasions, when the king and his ministers offer me their tribute, then you shall stand face to face with me. Therefore, Mount Oluno, having increased to the height aforesaid, suddenly falls down again at the top. Huh. So we have a myth surrounding it. That's very interesting. And here's a yet crazier myth from this region. Okay, hit me with it. 
About 200 li to the northwest of the royal city, we come to a great snowy mountain, on the summit of which is a lake. Here, whoever asks for rain or prays for fine weather according to his request, so he receives. Tradition says, in old time there was an arhat, that's a A-R-H-A-T, and it means like, it's a type of holy man who has supernatural powers as a result of his holiness. Okay. Belonging to Gandhara. I don't know if that's the place he's from or the... Sect? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Who constantly received the religious offerings of the Naga king of this lake. So, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Pause there. When we're talking about Naga... Yeah? Are we talking about, like, the snake people? Yeah. Oh, we are? Okay, okay. The D&D Naga is borrowed from Indian myth. Yes. Okay, I just wanted to make sure. So when we say Naga, we, we are talking about giant snake things. Giant snake people. So he's got the favor of the Naga king. Yes. To be clear, that's not the snake people that are the Yuan-Ti. That's the, the snake people who are the Naga, who are j- basically just have the human face. Yes, he constantly received the religious offerings of the Naga king of this lake. On the arrival of the time for the midday meal, by his spiritual power, he rose with the mat on which he sat into the air and went to the place where the Naga dwelt. <laughs> Flying carpet. That's amazing! His attendant, a Sramanera, which uh, means novice. Okay. Secretly catching hold of the under part of the mat, when the time came for the Arhat to go, was transported in a moment with him to the palace of the Naga. Upon arriving at the palace, the Naga saw the novice. Uh, it, it keeps using that really long word that starts with an S, but I can't say it right, so I'm going to just call him the novice. Okay. The Naga Raja, or Naga King, asking them to partake of his hospitality, provided the Arhat with immortal food but gave to the novice food used by men. Ooh, interesting. So this is sort of the inverse of the Western tradition of the fairy king offering immortal food to someone who's not supposed to be there and then get they get stuck. Here you want immortal food because it's immortal it's food. It's probably delicious. Yeah. And it's, it's never entirely clear to me reading, because there are a lot of stories about Nagas and stuff. It's never entirely clear what their deal is. Uh, sometimes they seem to be more like the Chinese river dragons we're used to, where they have, like, quasi-godlike powers. Sometimes they seem really unhappy to be big snakes. Hmm. Okay. They do all tend to live in, like, lakes. Yeah, yeah. The Arhat, having finished his meal, began then to preach for the good of the Naga, whilst he desired the novice, as was his custom. Wait, so, hang on, so he's a missionary to the Naga? Well, I think the Naga's already Buddhist. Because he's... So they're just, they're talking about different teachings together. One of the things that comes up a lot in this is there's a lot of value on being learned enough to explain the teachings of Buddhism uh, to other people. Right. That's just, that's very interesting to me because you're generally given wisdom from the other world rather than giving it to the other world or to the supernatural. So that, that's very cool. They're, they're having a dialogue and it's very normal or seemingly normal. Okay, keep going. Well, I mean, Buddha was a human, not a Naga. So you'd that's expect that the, the people who know the most would be other humans. That's true. That's true. Preach for the good of the Naga, while he desired the novice, as was his custom, to wash out his alms bowl. Now the bowl happened to have in it some fragments of the heavenly food. <gasps> oh no. Don't do it, kid. Startled at the fragrance of this food, forthwith there arose in him an evil determination. Irritated with his master and hating the Naga, he uttered the prayer that the force of all his religious merit might now be brought into operation 
with a view to deprive the Naga of life. And may I, he said, myself become a Naga king. Okay, that seems really foolhardy. Yeah, I'm not sure what his plan was there. Or like, I wouldn't his plan seems clear. King. I don't see his reasoning. Yeah. No sooner had the novice made this vow than the Naga perceived his head to be in pain. The Arhat, having finished his preaching concerning the duty of repentance, the Naga Raja confessed his sins, condemning himself. But the novice, still cherishing hatred in his heart, confessed not. And, okay, we all know what this gets you. We've talked about it once before. Street smarts, people, confess. Just do it. Confess. 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 Clearly, I've been doing too much fencing recently. That is my confession. <laughs> no, confess. You know, it's good for, you, good for your soul. And we've seen it in two traditions now. We see it in Buddhism. We see it in Christianity. So, what to whatever faith you belong, if you belong to a faith, confession is good for you. It does seem like they're all on board with it. Yeah, for now. I guess we'll see as we keep reading. And now having returned to the Sangharahama, I think this is just like a, a temple or something. I'm going to look this up, actually, so I can okay. use this word correctly. A temple or a monastery. So I'm just going to okay. say temple. And now having returned to the temple, in very truth, the prayer he had put up in consequence of the power of his religious merit was accomplished. And that very night, he died and became a Naga Raja. A Naga Raja. Oh, wow. So he did get what he wanted. Yes. Then, filled with rage, he entered the lake and killed the other Naga king and took possession of his palace. Moreover, he attached to himself the whole fraternity of his class, which then we get from the translator, i.e. all of the Nagas, Ah, okay. to enable him to carry out his original purpose. Then, fiercely raising the winds and tempests, he rooted up the trees and aimed at the destruction of the, says convent, but I think this one monastery might have been the better word. At this time, King Kanishka, surprised at the ravages, inquired of the Arhat as to the cause, on which he told the whole circumstance. The king, therefore, for the sake of the Naga, founded a temple at the foot of the snowy mountains and raised a stupa about 100 feet in height. The Naga, cherishing his former hatred, raised the wind and the rain, the king persevering in his purpose of charity, the Naga redoubled his fury, which in the translator says uh, the literal phrase literally translated is his angry poison. Ah, uh, okay. And became exceedingly fierce. Okay. Six times he destroyed the temple and the stupa, and on the seventh occasion, Kanishka, confused by his failure, determined to fill the Naga's lake and overthrow his palace. He came, therefore, with his soldiers to the foot of the snowy mountains. Then the Nagaraja, being terrified and shaken with apprehension, changed himself into an aged Brahmin, and bowing down before the king's elephant... I like this is the first time we're told that he's riding on an elephant, just like that's assumed. Wow. Where did he get the elephant from? Wait, is this the Naga king? No, the uh, human oh. king. Okay, okay, okay. I was like, why would a Naga king need an elephant? But okay, that makes more sense. Bowing down before the king's elephant, he remonstrated with the king and said, Maharaja, because of your accumulated merit in former births, you have now been born a king of men, and you have no wish which is not gratified. Why then today are you seeking a quarrel with the Naga? Nagas are only... <laughs> After all you've done? Like, really? Besides, you didn't even start off as a Naga. That seems like a really stupid question. Well, this, this is the... New Naga in disguise as a person talking to the king. Okay, true. True. 
But like, there's there's such a hubris in this guy. Nagas are only brutish creatures. Nevertheless, ah! wow, get a load of this guy. Nevertheless, among lower creatures, the Naga possesses great power, which cannot be resisted. He rides on the clouds, drives the wind, passes through space, and glides over the waters. No human power can conquer him. Why then is the king's heart so angry? You have now raised the army of your country to fight with a single... This time it says dragon, which I guess is similar. Yeah, I was wondering about that earlier, because we t- you, you talked about the water monsters... And, but it didn't specify that it was a dragon. So I wonder if they were Naga in the in the previous one. I'm thinking these are all kind of variations on the same sort of tradition. Yeah, definitely. If you conquer, your renown will not spread very far. But if you are conquered, you will suffer the humiliation of defeat. Let me advise the king to withdraw his troops. The king Kanishka hesitating to reply, the dragon. He's now a dragon for like the next two paragraphs for some reason. Okay. The dragon returned to his lake. His voice, like the thunderclap, shook the earth, and the fierce winds tore up the trees, whilst stones and sand pelted down like rain. The somber clouds obscured the air, so that the army and the horses were filled with terror. The thing... thing... The king... (laughs) Then paid his adoration to the three precious ones. Uh, Again, that's, um, Buddha, the law, and the community. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm and sought their help, saying, My abounding merit during former births has brought about my state as king of men. By my power I have restrained the strong and conquered the world. But now, as it appears, by the onslaught of a dragon beast overcome, this, verily, is proof of my poor merit. Let the full power of all my merit now appear. This is something that kind of keeps coming up, like, throughout all these little stories in the text, is that religious merit is something that you kind of can just store up. Interesting. Which is, you also see in uh, The Journey West, which I mentioned earlier, in one of the early chapters, the Monkey King gains enlightenment. And then he does all kinds of dumb stuff afterwards, but he still counts as enlightened because he got there, and apparently you can't revoke that. Interesting. I was going to say, is it like stored up, like like in Skyrim you have like your magicka, and then it just depletes, and then it comes back again? That's interesting. So once you're enlightened, you, you have your enlightenment, and you can get away with stuff. Yeah. So I wonder if the apprentice's mistake was that he didn't get to be a perfected one. He didn't get to mastery first before he invoked all his... Yeah, he, he blew all his merit on wishing to be a naga. Huh. Interesting. And notice that even when you make like a clearly wrong-headed vow backed by the religious merit you've accumulated, it still happens. Yeah. No one says, like, excuse me, that is not a holy thing to want. It just... Yeah. No, you still get it. That's interesting. I wonder if that's, like, fate or something in sort of the Western tradition. It's like you can call upon this, that, or the other thing, but it turns out for good or ill based on whether it's a good decision or a bad decision. Because he had a lot of hubris. That, that's what I'm getting out of the, out of this story in particular is the king is calling upon the three precious ones. And yeah, he calls upon the three precious ones for the sake of his community and for the sake of his holiness. But the apprentice or the novice didn't. He did it for his own gain. So... That's what I'm getting out of this. So when the king calls upon the power of his own merit, from both his shoulders there arose a great flame and smoke, which must look pretty impressive. That's way better than the steam that we saw last week. Where's where's the priest in this one? I want to see a priest come falling out. 
still can't get over how ridiculous that moment was. I would rather have, like, gouts of flame coming off my shoulders, to be fair. That'd be much more interesting. But again, that's like, it's, you have the same comic book imagery of, like, Hades in Disney getting really mad and his hair goes all on fire. Oh, man. The dragon fled, the winds hushed, the mists were melted, and the clouds were scattered. Then the king commanded each man of his army to take a stone and thus to fill up the dragon lake. Again, the dragon king changed himself into a Brahmin and asked the king once more, I am the Naga king of yonder lake. He's a Naga again now. I don't know why the translator keeps switching back and forth. Okay, interesting. I wonder if it's a different Chinese word or a different Mandarin word. It might be. It might be that uh, when Xuan Sang was writing all this down, he kept going back to the Mandarin word for dragon instead of trying to write Naga. Naga. Interesting. Or whatever dialect of Chinese he spoke. I have no idea if it was Mandarin or something different. Probably not Mandarin, but a precursor. I am the Naga king of yonder lake. Affrighted by your power, I tender my submission. Would that the king in pity might forgive my former faults. The king indeed loves to defend and cherish all animated beings. Why then alone against me is he incensed? If the king kill me, uh-huh. then we both shall fall into an evil way. Hush you. The king for killing, I for cherishing an angry mind. Huh, so he's almost repenting. Deeds and their consequences will be plainly manifested when the good and evil are brought to light. The king then agreed with the Naga that if hereafter he should again be rebellious, there should be no forgiveness. The Naga said, Because of my evil deeds, I have received a dragon form. I mean, he did request a dragon form, to be fair. Yes, but I think requesting it was also an evil deed. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Delilah. I know you saw a squirrel or, or, or something out the window, but we're not, we're not going to go see it. The nature of Nagas is fierce and wicked, so that they are unable to control themselves. If by chance an angry heart rises in me, it will be from forgetfulness of our present compact. The king may now build the temple once more. I will not venture to destroy it again. Each day let the king send a man to observe the mountaintop. If it is black with clouds, then let him sound the... Ganta, which is apparently some kind of drum or cymbal type instrument. Okay. Loudly. When I hear the sound of it, my evil purpose will subside. Forthwith, the king renewed his work in raising the temple and the stupa. People look out for the clouds and mists on the mountaintop down to the present day. Tradition says that in this stupa there is a considerable quantity... And then the translator specifies it. Uh, this particular word can also be translated as... A pint. A pint? A pint of relics. <laughs> okay. Of uh, Tathagatha. Tathagatha? One of Buddha's disciples. Okay. Consisting of his bones and flesh, and that wonderful miracles are wrought thereby, which it would be difficult to name separately. At one time, miracles. What miracles doesn't matter? I'm not going to list them. We're on something else. There's too many. Yeah. At one time, from within the stupa, there arose suddenly a smoke which was quickly followed by a fierce flame of fire. On this occasion, the people said the stupa was consumed. They gazed for a long time till the fire was expended and the smoke disappeared when they beheld a sarira, which is apparently, according to my quick Google there, a generic term referring to Buddhist relics, though in common usage it usually refers to pearl or crystal-like bead-shaped objects that are purportedly found among the cremated ashes of Buddhist masters. Huh. So one of those. So you leave behind like a little gem of yourself. Yeah. 
Okay. To show how, how pure you are when you're cremated, uh, your ashes have pearls in them. Huh. Interesting. I wonder if that's like, you know, if you take like um, graphite and a pencil and you microwave it or something, it'll turn into like a little crystal. I did not I know wonder- Yeah, I, I think that's one of those science things like you can do like homeschooling or whatever. But I think, like, I wonder if that has anything to do with it. Like a really, really hot flame in your body, like takes bone marrow or the carbon in that or something and turns it into a crystal. I wonder if that has any actual scientific backing. My first thought was like, actually, I had a couple thoughts about how that might happen. Just as (laughs) soon as I read that, my first thought was maybe Buddhists have kidney stones. That is, that is a good thought. Honestly, that's pretty, yeah. But what also occurs to me is... If the myth got started that, like, uh, burning the body of a Buddhist master leaves behind pearls, maybe Buddhist masters near the end of their life started swallowing pearls. Ooh, that's a good thought. I like that. That's an interesting idea. I I know that it's probably a personality flaw of mine when whenever I hear, like, this is what holy men do, my first thought is, how is this a scam? Yeah, interesting. No, that's, that's a really clever idea, though. Swallowing pearls. Like, I, I suppose if if they're considered something holy or, like, immortal food, like naga food, you could eat pearls. I mean, yeah. But anyway, they're watching this stupa burn, and the fire is expended and the smoke disappears when they beheld one of these things, like a white pearl gem, which moved with a circular motion round the surmounting pole of the stupa. It then separated itself and ascended up on high to the region of the clouds, and after scintillating there a while, again descended with a circular motion. Huh. And the footnote says, this account probably refers to some electrical phenomena. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, okay. All right. And it goes on. The surmounting pole of the stupa was provided with metal rings or discs, and was capped generally with a metal pitcher, so-called. This would naturally act as a lightning conductor. So the... (gasps) British Victorian translators, like, this this thing they're describing that's a miracle, probably, like, some weird lightning thing. Which, maybe. The lightning rod. But that doesn't explain, like, the circular Well, it's got thing. rings around the pole. Yeah. Have you ever seen a lightning strike? I have not. Like, up close. I have. It was very, very interesting because when it hit, I was 13 and I was scared out of my wits. And it hit this tree. This lightning hit this tree. And I distinctly remember... There were three bright dots that were surrounded by, like, hot pink. And so, I mean, maybe that's where they're getting that from. I don't know. But I remember there being three circles of bright, hot energy. Very strange. I'll never forget that day. But, huh. It's possible that our translator's thinking of something like ball lightning or St. Elmo's fire or one of those other weird things. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And that's the end of our story about the Naga King. Okay. Oh my gosh. I think we have now recorded probably as much as we possibly can and still do this in one episode. I think so. Okay. Which is also a good place to stop because this is the end of book one in this thing. And book two is uh, starts with him actually arriving in India and starting to describe the country. Ooh, okay. That'll be very interesting. So we can get to that another time. Yes. Oh, boy. These are all amazing. I thought you'd like them. I really enjoyed them. I really do. Okay, should we go through... What say you? Our best dialogue? 
Mm, there is dialogue. I'm not sure any of it is notable that I can think of. I mean, I think that what is this is a pretty... <laughs> That's true. What is this and what does it signify? <laughs> and what does it signify? Because that, that would be a very... like I would want to know that too if I were a king presented with that. How would you react if like you had your bits in a box and you gave it to your brother and his first thing was, what is this? <laughs> I mean, I, I guess I'd be a little offended. I'd be like, dude, you know what that is. <laughs> it's perfectly normal. Stop acting like it looks weird. Yeah, yeah, you know. Being in a box for a couple months didn't, you know, doesn't change that much. Or however long, it was not clear how long the case. It was not clear at all. So I feel like, what is this and what does it signify is a pretty, pretty straightforward question to ask. Yeah, alright. Oh, man. And then... Altobrast. That's death. Mm, the guy who got squished. In the stupa? Yeah, the stupa. Yeah. That one's... My, I love that. That's gotta be the best death. Plus, it's a noble death. It's a very noble death. You know, I'm kind of surprised that the Starfish King didn't die in doing what he did. Oh, that... Yeah. I mean, that's a lot of blood. I mean... Presumably. This is a part of the world where they had medical technology during this time. I that's mean, not true. like MRI that's machines, true. but they knew how to cauterize a wound. That's true. Oh, that'd be a horrible place to be cauterized. That'd be a horrible place to be anything. Yeah, that's... Yeah, that's true. Ooh. Yeah, but definitely... Stupa guy. Is it stupa or stupa? I don't know. Okay, temple guy. Shrine guy. Dead shrine guy. Who turned into shrine slime. Did you say shrine slime? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I feel like you can make a tourist attraction off of that. Yeah. Please don't. We don't want tourist sites around holy relics. Let's not do that. We don't want, like, that's that was the most disappointing thing about Venice, in my opinion. But then again, Venice has been a tourist trap since 1500, so I digress. And pretty much since it stopped being a major world power, it's been a tourist trap. It's been a tourist trap, which is saying like 1500 or something. Yeah, Shrine Slime Guy had the best death. Bestiary. Alright, bestiary, I think there's a lot of things to note. There's a lot for the bestiary, yeah. So we've got the dragon horses. Do we want to include the dragon kids? Do they count? Yeah, I guess they count. Because, I mean, they're half dragon. Although, it would give more, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Including them in the bestiary gives more credibility to the whole dragonborn thing, which I'm still annoyed as a core race. Yes. Okay, deal. We had little descendants of dragons that you could play as a player character. We called them kobolds. Yeah, that's true. That's fair. They were cool enough. You didn't need to make them big and breathe fire. <laughs> yeah, people like dragons. But then again, you know, like, D&D is basically humans will... Actually, human history is basically humans will get with anyone or anything. That is basically human history. There has always been, like, half-dragon and dragon-touched templates in the yeah. stuff. It's just making them a core race that annoyed me. That's entirely valid. I only got into D&D in 5th edition, so I can't speak to any of that. That was introduced in 4th edition. Yeah, but I will say, in my homebrew, Dragonborn don't exist. Yeah, mine either. Because it's just too, there's there's too much going on there, and I don't know, it feels pretty OP to me. Yeah. Yeah. 
they're no tieflings. They just seem excessive. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. They get a little far. Like, they, they were already available in the rules. You didn't have to make them a core-like option. Yeah. They should be that's something that's unusual. Yeah, they should. They definitely should. Okay, any other... Uh, unspecified scaly monsters? Yes. Dragons, water serpents, unspecified scaly creatures. Naga. The Naga, definitely. Do we have anything else? Does the mountain count? It might. I feel like Tolkien had a mountain with a name and a personality. Which mountain had a personality? It's been a while since I've actually read, but I seem to remember the reason they went into the mines of Moria. Oh, yeah, that's right. I was going to say, like, Dole or Moth or something, but no, 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 you're right. It was the past. Gandalf was like, the mountain is angry. That's true. That's true. Some of that was Saruman's fault, I thought. It could be. Again, it's been four. We can count the we can count the mountain. What was it? The ice mountain. It had a proper name. Let me see if I can find it again. Because the one, I think it was the ice mountain. Don't wear red in the ice mountain. They're they're all called stuff like ice mountain and snowy mountain. And snowy mountain, yeah. The mountain that did not uh, welcome the heavenly spirit is called either Olu No in the transliteration, and that's apostrophe O L U N O or. Aruna in the uh, attempt of the translator to fully translate it. it. Yeah, which is A R U in with a dot under it. A. Okay. U with a dot under it. In with a dot under it. In with a dot dot under it. I know in IPA that means it's syllabic, but I don't know if that's that applies here. Grant me the gomen. Adaptation for a D and D game. Yes. What do we want to put in here? I want to include the Convent of the Starfish King. <laughs> yes, Convent of the Starfish King, for sure. Like, both the name and the story behind it, I think, are fantastic. We definitely need this. I feel like having the Naga King, you automatically have a pretty good mission there. Like, defeat the Naga King, and he turns into a person. Plus, there's that whole thing where, like, he doesn't have a lot of self-control, and he forgets and gets angry, and you have to, like, watch. You have to, like, watch the mountain. So you could have just, like, a one-off adventure where a local king is like, hey, see those clouds up on the mountain? That means someone has to go up there and bang this drum. Yes. Good luck. Good luck. They're like, bang the drum. Okay. And then the Naga King shows up. That's amazing. I feel like you could start a mystery around the shrine slime guy. Yeah. I think that would be a lot of fun. Like you see this weird viscous liquid coming out of a shrine and you have to figure out, like, the murder of this guy. Even though he he wasn't technically murdered in the story, but it's a good premise for a mystery plot. Or just set dressing for a temple. So you're like, oh yeah, someone miraculously opened this reliquary but then got stuck in it. Yep, yep. That's why the ooze. Just don't touch the ooze, you'll be fine. Yeah. Or what if it's a, um, a mimic? What if the shrine is a mimic? <laughs> That would be wild. That would be great. What kind of bizarre, like, extra effects would a mimic have if it contained holy relics? Ooh, a legendary mimic. It would have, like, a legendary action. I don't know what that means. Well, like, if you got, I feel like if you were able to get the, I mean, and your loot is already, like, built in. Because you can take the holy relic. It's perfect. You're sent to go find this holy relic. The holy record, the holy relic just happens to be... Stuck inside a mimic. There you go. You could have them uh, track down rumors of like, oh yeah, the holy relic used to be here. 
But, yeah. you know, the monastery was falling on hard times. So we sold it off to this guy. And like, okay, where did that guy go? And eventually you get to, okay, it was placed in this shrine. Mm-hmm. But it's this weird shrine that oozes. That oozes. I like it. I like it. Amazing. What else? The dragons are just there. The naga are just there. You can obviously use those. I like the idea of sandstorms and stuff that happen if you wear the wrong color. Yeah. That's just, that's great to have, again, for world building, set dressing, rumors. And it's one of those things that you as a DM can just throw into a conversation as a side note. And if your players aren't paying attention, they're going to end up with an, an encounter. Yes. You know, because you can, you can have, like, the fire spirits or the wind spirits or whatever come down in that mountain pass. That'd be a good way to do it. Okay. Or just have it thrown out, like, completely out of context. Like, when they're talking to someone about the travel plan, someone just says, oh, yeah, like, don't wear red. Don't wear red. Yeah. And if they ask why, they're like, I don't know, I just heard you're not supposed to. Or, or just say, like, oh, no, no, it's the tradition. Or, you know, especially if it's, like, the local priest and you, you have characters who don't follow that religion. That would be fantastic, because then it's like, do you listen to the priest? Do you not listen to the priest? Especially if you also include some, like, random advice that doesn't have a basis in reality. Yeah. Red herring. (laughs) Oh, no. Especially if it sounds weird. Like, don't wear red. You have to fast for two days before you go. You have to pray to my little idol here. Make a a donation in the box, and you'll have a safe passage. (laughs) And uh, if you're an elf, you're full of sin, so you're going to get screwed anyway. And, like, the only part of that that's true is the red. That'd be fun. That'd be fun. Yeah, throw your characters for a loop. That's good. That's good. Anything else? I think we can, you can use a lot of these names, because those are fun. Those are fun. And they're not traditional Western names, too. No, I think it would be good, especially if you have characters traveling a lot, which I feel like a lot of campaigns do, is you could borrow some of these names and place descriptions. Definitely. Definitely. And even even if you do have a world, for instance, that's not set in as much of an Asian-centered culture or your world building something that is uh, based on a different culture, you can still use the descriptions that are there. You know, snowy mountains are snowy mountains, whether they're in Patagonia or the Himalayas. So your past does not need to be, you know, a Naga King past. It can, or a, a dragon past. It can also be a Chupacabra past, I suppose. If you want to go 20th century with your <laughs> monster origins. I don't know. I'm just throwing that out there. I was expecting you to say Wendigo. Yeah, that'd be cool. A Wendigo pass. Wendigos are just cool. I would be terrified to come across a Wendigo. I think you're supposed to be. Yeah, that's true. Okay. How many ages hence shall this our lofty scene be acted over? In states unborn and accents yet unknown. Culture. Journey West. Journey West, perfect, yeah. The whole thing has been adapted into one of the one of the great Chinese novels. You can go read it. There we go. Easy peasy. There's I think there's a lot also in the ideas of otherworldly food and engaging with the Naga or engaging with the dragons. But those are those are bigger, broader. They're they're not as specific to maybe these stories, but it does I think it does display a difference between Eastern and Western culture surrounding dragons as well which is fascinating. You can talk with these dragons. And Western dragons are generally not as friendly to talk to. Although we did see some examples where these dragons weren't as friendly either, so. I mean, in D&D, you can talk to them all, but 
True. Side note about the journey west. My father is a professor of music at a conservatory back in Maryland, and a lot of his students are international students. And in their, like, traditions, they're taught to give their teachers a gift at the end of, like, their studies. Oh, that's so sweet. Yeah, and recently he got a, one of these gifts that was like a uh, depiction of a scene from The Journey West, but he didn't quite follow like the explanation of what it was, apparently, because when I came over shortly after he got it, he was like, I want to put this on display, but I think it might be a religious thing, and I'm not sure. I don't want to be disrespectful to it. Aw, that's so sweet. Like, it does involve gods and spirits and whatnot, but it's not a, a religious icon in any way. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. That's my personal connection to the Journey West. I've heard of it, I haven't really encountered it, so I'll have to put that on my list. If you've heard any stories about the Monkey King, that's where it all comes from. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. Isn't there a Netflix show that's got, like, the Monkey King in it now? There might be. He's kind of a popular okay. figure. I think that there is. It's like a teen show or something. I know he appeared in uh, Jackie Chan Adventures when I was a kid. Ooh, I love Jackie Chan's movies. They're fantastic. I've never... Well, I've seen Shanghai Noon, but I have not seen most of his movies. There is a really goofy one that I love just because it's so fun and you realize that he just had fun making this film. And I kid you not, it's called Kung Fu Yoga and... When I tell you what it's about, the title has nothing to do with, with what it's about. And it's the most, it's just a funny film. So it's called Kung Fu Yoga. And it's about a, t- <laughs> it's about a team of archaeologists <laughs> who travel the world trying to find this like legendary artifact from some general. And they like, they end up all over the world. And like, there's a, they get stuck in like a tiger's cage at some point. It's, Anyway, it's a very funny movie, and it's Jackie Chan, and it's just a goofball film. And I clicked on it because it was like, Kung Fu Yoga, this looks funny. And it was about a team of archaeologists, and This it sounds click. really similar to the, the kids' cartoon I was familiar with. Yeah! He did the voice of the main character, who was based on him, who was an archaeologist who traveled the world, yeah. like, looking for... All his, all his characters are just him, like, his... His character's name is literally, like, Jack Chan. So, oh man, shout out to Jackie Chan. Great films. And brilliant martial artist, genuinely. He's a fantastic martial artist. So I'm told. Future Zoe here, back again. One thing that I can't believe we didn't point out in the episode was the modern note of Aladdin and the flying carpet. We do see a flying carpet in these stories. In one of these stories, we have the Arhat and the novice who grabs on at the end of the flying carpet. And we also see a modern day equivalent of that in Aladdin. There's also flying carpets in D&D. So we do have some modern day connections there. I know nothing about the who do we want for a D&D party? I feel like the Starfish King. We want the Starfish King. He clearly has everyone's best interests at heart. He'd be good to have around. Yeah. And then who else? I kind of also want the guy who got crushed in the shrine. <laughs> you just want him in the party? I think he'd make a good cleric. He's very devoted to his his cause. And he is he is holy enough to make stones open and let him in, just not let him back out. Not let him back out. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And then, you know, you can re-roll a new character. Yeah. No, okay. Okay. Who else? 
I feel like we need we need a fighter here. Ooh, what about the king? Which one? The um not the Naga king, but the uh the king that fights the Naga. Kanishka. Kanishka. Our magic user, uh the guy who has the flying mat and visits the Naga king. Yeah, well he dies so fast. Doesn't he die? I don't think he does. He just disappears out of the story. Yeah, the last time he's mentioned in the story, I think, is when he's explaining to the king what happened. And, like, that's it. Yeah, he goes back to being, you know, a holy man. He's like, well, my novice turned evil. I'm just gonna go. (laughs) Maybe I'll get a new one. I don't know. You know, you always lose a... That'd be a, a really fantastic backstory, actually. Like, well, my novice decided to, you know, turn into a Naga king and overthrow an empire, so... Now I gotta go and fix that. I think that'd be a fantastic backstory for for a player character. Yeah, it would. Especially if you're starting them at a low level, so you have to be like, how much did you actually teach this guy? You don't know that much. (laughs) Oh, no. Yeah, he's like, well, you know, I did a lot of theory in college, but uh, (laughs) I didn't really pass my practical exams. (laughs) Those who, you know, those who can't teach, right? (laughs) My mother hates that saying. I hate that saying. Oh, man. That's great. Okay. So we've got our party. We've got Kanishka. We've got the sage. We've got the slime monk. And we have the starfish king. There we go. That's a full rounded party, too. Now, the question is, is slime monk pre or post slime? It would be so much more fun to say He's one of those oozes. That'd be interesting. But, you know, it could be pre, but for more fun, make it post. Post-slime monk. What if he just had, like, what if he was brought back by a warlock, by, like, his religious nature or whatever, and he just had, like, he was just constantly dripping some sort of ooze out of an orifice. Amazing and horrifying. Right? Like, he's just got, like, black ooze dripping out of his ear, or, like, maybe he lost an arm, and so he's, like, got his stump is just constantly dripping. That's how we can play that. But he's very polite about it. He's just like, I'm sorry yeah. I'm dripping on your floor. Yeah. You know, don't mind the dead body ooze. I'm technically alive. Maybe. Okay. Now let's sit at the kitchen table. We have the heavenly food, but it's we not specified what it is made of. Except that it fits in a yeah. bowl. It fits in a bowl and it makes crumbs. Okay. Well, that's pretty straightforward. The Dungeon Master's Dictionary. I feel like there's a lot. There's a lot here. What do we have? You've got the text, so you can throw out some words for us. The idea of a stupa as like a shrine-reliquary combination is pretty good. Yeah. Especially if you go look up uh, pictures of them, because they're very varied, and lots, lots of them are very pretty. Yeah, they are very pretty. What about the words for master and novice? I think those you could integrate into a into a world. So what are those words? The novice was... Sraminera, S with an acute, R, A with a hat, M, A, N with a dot under it, E with a hat, R, A. Deal with that how you want. Yeah. Uh, the master was re- was described as an R hat, which is just exactly how it sounds, A-R-H-A-T. Okay, well that one's easier. Yeah, which is, I think it's a rank in like the levels of enlightenment and holiness. <laughs> like you're not like a Buddha, but you've got some stuff going on. Okay. Well, that's something you can you can bring in as well, is you can create orders of, like, monastic orders within your D&D game. Any other words? One that wasn't in any of the stuff I read that I did mention in passing when we were talking about Tibet. Ooh, yes. 
So this guy's like deal is he's the guy who wrote this is he's going to collect Buddhist scriptures and mm-hmm. he's part of a school of Buddhism that's more abstract and spiritual, which he calls the great vehicle. Yeah, that's right. Less abstract Buddhism he calls the little vehicle, which I think is a really interesting like way to divide sects of a religion by saying like they're both going to heaven, but ours is better. <laughs> yeah. That's a great way of doing it. The great vehicle and the little vehicle. I like it. That's great. Okay. We can go back and find the names later, too, and we can put the names in. Street smarts! If you are opening stones in order to place something within, do not wear long flowing garments. Yes, I was going to say, be very careful when entering shrines and reliquaries find suitable clothing you know maybe that's the reason why they especially require like when you go and you visit a catholic church you have to cover your shoulders and cover your knees i did not know this about yeah yeah in a lot of in a lot of the places in rome when i visited you had to have your shoulders covered and you had to have your knees covered i believe it's a modesty thing yeah, I was going to say, this funniest... sounds like a high school dress code. Yes, but the funniest thing about it was you would have women who would wear scarves over their shoulders, and they would wear shorts that were long enough or skirt long enough to cover their knees, but they'd have a totally bare midriff, and that was fine. And I thought that was so bizarre. I'm like, that's more legalist than what the principle requires, like if you're entering a church, but okay. So maybe there's another reason for this. Can you go in with only your shoulders and knees covered? That would be another thing that I have not personally tested. Well, now you have something else for your bucket list. I do. I do. I shall have to try. That would be very interesting. But it's, there's some there's some Indian shrines that you have to remove your shoes before you go in. So yeah, just be careful about flowy garments and shrines so you don't get stuck in there. Do not take noisy calabashes on a mountain pass. Yes, that is a very good one. Or don't wear red. Check to see if any of the local weather and or wildlife is offended by bright colors. Yes. Be very careful. Talk to your local Sherpa. (laughs) Yes. Find a local Sherpa who can help you out, who knows the local rules. Don't piss off the mountain. That's a good one. Oh, pray to the dragons. If you get instructions to pray to the dragons, just, you know, pray to the dragons. That's a good one. All of the, these are these are local geographical things. So if you are going to go into the mountains and region of what is this? I guess Lower Tibet, China area. More Upper Tibet, actually. Upper Tibet. Okay. Yeah, Afghanistan. Yeah. If you go into that area, you know, find out what the local spirits like and don't like, and be ready for that. Also, don't try and steal heavenly food. Just don't do it. And you know, if you're uh apprentice is hanging on to the bottom of your flying carpet, you're within your rights to just kick him off. Yeah. You know, he's supposed to listen to you. He is an apprentice. Like, come on. Didn't we learn anything from Anakin Skywalker here? Come on. Okay. We got our street smarts. Best moment. Okay. Best moment. What is the best moment? I'm gonna let you decide that one. best moment and my best dialogue are the same every single time but i just i (laughs) we might want to take out best dialogue i know i mean it depends it depends on how different they are i suppose that the best dialogue is the what is this and what does it signify but the best moment for me is when he grows his penis back it's like 
you know, you, you made this big sacrifice and it paid off. And you kept your virtue by not going back into the harem. I also like that he grew it back because he felt sorry for a bunch of oxen about to be gelded. So he paid their owner to not geld them. And Yeah, that's true. It's like the combined virtue of saving the bits of oxen gives you your own bits back. Yeah. I wonder if that has anything to do with, like, um, reincarnation. I think a lot of, like, the kind of moral instruction that comes in this text has to do with... Has to do with... Yeah, reincarnation. The idea of, like, virtue makes you be reincarnated somewhere better, and you have to treat things below you with virtue in order to, yeah. Yeah, to move ahead. I think a lot of it's built on the idea that you should have empathy for oxen and whatnot, because you might have been an oxen. uh, Yeah. An oxen. An ox in a previous life. Yeah. And if you don't watch your B's and Q's, you might be an ox again. So, you know, treat oxen well. Treat everybody well, I suppose, is the the takeaway in in these stories, and in Buddhism in large as well. A lot lot of the religions in that area, Jainism is, I don't know if they're about reincarnation, but they're definitely pacifists. Yeah. Yeah. Sikhs are as well. They They have swords. That's true, but they're against war, per se. Like, organized war. I think. That's true. Yeah, you do have a dagger. I think it's a self-preservation thing. I don't know. I had a roommate who was a Sikh, and she was... Maybe that was just her belief, where she's like, nope, against war. Maybe that was just her. I don't know. No, that's that's my favorite moment, is when he grows it back, and yet retains his virtue. I especially like that, because the universe does not reward him. Like, the story, the story doesn't end with him being rewarded with sex. And I think that's really, really important, is the the outcome is not sex. The outcome is he retains his virtue. Right, because that absolutely could have been where that went. Because it's like, yeah. he has blanket permission to hang out with the concubines, and suddenly he has the ability to take advantage of that again. And his response is, I'm not going to hang out with the concubines anymore. Yeah, yeah. Virtuous guy right there. Although maybe the concubines miss him, so I feel kind of sorry for them. Well, hey, they did turn into a convent, so who knows? Maybe they all became celibate as well. I don't know. Is it terrible that... Are we going on to the court? We might. The court. I feel like this is obvious. Like, I either went Kanishka or I went the Starfish King. Oh, man. I realized when I was looking at our, our list for the courts is that I think yours is all female and mine is all male. I have also known, I think I have one guy, but I forget who it is. Really? Oh, I have the druid. That's right. You do have the druid. That's right. I just thought that was interesting. But there's there's no real women in this text except for the convent. So you're going to have to pick, yeah, a, a, a male character in this I don't one. know. I always sympathize more with the female characters. Okay. Okay. So there's Kanishka, who is the king, and then there's the starfish king. Man. I feel like the Starfish King has a very wonderful place in my heart. So I'm going to go with the Starfish King just because he's such a beautiful example of virtue. And I really like that because as someone who has had guys come on to me and not listened when I said no, that really annoys me. So it's important to maintain your virtue and to, even if you have the opportunity to take advantage or to be with women, just maybe don't. I'm surprised that guys don't respect your no, because I happen to know you carry a knife and know how to use it. <laughs> yeah, you'd be you'd be really surprised. I don't generally pull knives out on men. Maybe you should. 
Futuremac here. There was originally a bit of a knife-related tangent at this point in the episode, but Zoe later decided we should leave it out. So there's a bit of a discontinuity here, which is why I'm mentioning it. So jumping ahead, like, several minutes. And always take the high road when it comes to your virtue. So I picked Starfish King because I think he's a great model for young men. I mean, maybe don't castrate yourself. You don't need to castrate yourself. But, you know, just don't take advantage of women. If for some reason you need to be castrated, have a medical professional do it. Don't do it yourself. Don't do it yourself. Street smarts. Don't castrate yourself. (laughs) I can't believe that this is what this show is about. Okay. Who is your pick for the court? I am also picking a king. I'm going to pick King Golden Flower from the beginning. Ooh, King Golden Flower. Of the Tokarians slash dragon people. Yeah. I just, I, I like him. I, I like that he has dragon horses. I think he, I think he's got a cool name, even though I'm sure that it sounds more like a name when you don't translate it all the way. He's got a very cool name. I mean, I feel like it's calling someone, like, if you call someone Charity. Yeah, you can get away with those names, I think. It depends. Okay. <laughs> Man, poor Krishna. Wait, is that his name? Kanishka. Krishna is someone else. Kanishka. He's a great choice, too, but I still gotta go with the Starfish King. Okay. Final rating. Final rating. Do we want to do this in story sections? Do we want to do this in one go? Do we want to do it in parts? I think it could work either way. We could do it the same way we're doing the Gesta Romanorum, where we rate each one and then kind of average them together. I think that's a good idea. Do we want to... Okay, so we've got the Dragon Horses, the Starfish King. I feel like the Ice Mountain Pass and the Lake... And the, the shrine slime kind of fit together. Okay, so those fit together with the unwelcome mountain. We'll put that together. And then there's the Naga King. Okay, so four things. Perfect. So dragon horses. Love it. Automatically is amazing. And it, I think it exemplifies the human nature to just get with everything. But also the dragon nature of doing that at the same time. Like we learn a lot about dragons in this story. Yeah, I, I think the ones who are doing the most sleeping around are the dragons. That's true. It is the dragons in this story. I mean, I can't guarantee the humans aren't sleeping with the horses. They're just no offspring. But I'm going to assume they're probably not. Yeah. Yeah. Because I'm sure that's pretty dangerous. Okay. Dragon horses. Automatically fantastic. We got a king with an epic name. I'm going to give that one... They, they don't really do anything in that story except for, like, cause havoc. Yeah, we, we just get a, an <laughs> overview of, like... Uh, they became rebellious, and eventually they were uh, put down, and the Turks control and the place the now. Okay, okay. So it's short, sweet, to the point. Could use a little bit more elaboration. So I'm going to give this one a solid eight. All right, I will match that eight, because I agree. Okay. It's, it's a really good premise. I wish we had more of it. Yeah, we need some more of it. Starfish King, I love this. I love the Starfish King story. It's got everything you want. It's got honor, it's got weirdness, it's got a good reward with a great moral. I don't know, man. Like, I don't, I genuinely really like this story. I think this one might just get a 10. I'm not quite as taken with- I'll I'll give it, I'm going to give it a 9.5 because we don't get his name. I want his name. That's true. I don't think we get anyone's name in this story, and that is a flaw. That is a flaw. All right, I'm not quite as taken with the Starfish King as you are. I'm giving this one another 8. 
Another eight. Okay, sounds good. The Okay, so there's the Ice Mountain Pass, the Lake with the Dragons and Serpents, the Relics of Buddha, Shrine Slime Guy, and the Unwelcome Mountain, which we're all putting together. So this is like travels, basically, with Shrine Slime Guy, which I love. Like, way to go, Shrine Slime Guy. I feel like you just like saying that name. <laughs> I also really like saying that name. We don't get his name. This is the problem. We don't get anybody's names in these stories. No, we did. We did. His name is... The, the shrine slime, slime guy is named Rahula. You liked that name, remember? Oh, Rahula. That's right. Rahula. Okay. I will make a note of that. Uh, okay. I like that there's a lot of dragons in these stories. That automatically gets some pluses. They're all very short. I don't really understand the mountain one with the mountain town. And I, I don't know. I feel like there's a little bit more lacking in these. So I'm going to give this one a seven. I like these, but not as much as the others. I will actually match that seven. Okay. Because I, I agree with your assessment. Yes. Then we have the Naga King. This one is also fantastic. And I feel like it can be chunked off into sections as well. Because we start off with the master and the novice and the master just goes back and does not take any responsibility for his novice, which maybe, you know, maybe he's not supposed to take any responsibility. And like, what do you like, really, what are you going to do when your novice turns into a Naga King? I feel like that's not in the instruction manual. Yeah, that's not in the handbook. They don't teach you how to deal with that. Like, maybe the best option is to tell the local king, like, just so you know. That's true. That's exactly what you do in Skyrim, to be fair, is... A dragon swoops down when you're supposed to be killed, and you end up going to, what is it, White Horse? I don't, video games. Know? I don't know. Whatever the main city is, and you talk to the Jarl first thing, and he's like, Oh, that's not good. There is dragon around. And you're like, okay, now what? And he's like, you're the dragonborn. So, you know... <laughs> It's a very strange game. I love Skyrim, but when you think about it, it's very strange. <laughs> but I mean, that's what you do, is you're like, oh no, there's a dragon, and then you go to your local Jarl. So it makes sense. You go to your local authority figure who's got an army big enough to deal with this problem. And an elephant. So, yeah, and an elephant in this case. So... I do enjoy that. So that's like the first chunk of the story. And then the second chunk of the story is just them fighting the Naga, the Naga King. And then all of a sudden you just end up with people watching the mountain. It's not really resolved per se. Like presumably they're still there watching the mountain. Yeah, because the Naga King surrenders and then says, but I'm going to forget because Nagas are terrible creatures and our nature is to be fierce. So... If you see stuff on the mountain, go bang drums until I remember that I'm supposed to be good now. Yeah. Which is a really strange conclusion. It's a a very strange conclusion. I think I'm going to stick with a seven on this one as well, just because it feels like it can be chunked out into different pieces, but they're not necessarily as cohesive as some of the other ones are. I'm going to give this a 7.5. I don't think it's quite enough to get an 8, but I do like it. It's a good one. I do really like it. Okay. So we've got our ratings. What else do we have? Welcome to the Leech's Corner. Alright, here's a nice uh, short one, since I think we've this episode's aiming to be kind of long. Okay. For hair lip. For hair lip? Wait, is this like having... No, H-A-R-E. Like, if you have a... It's a deformity oh. of the lip. Okay, I misunderstood. Okay, so it's like... It's like... 
They call it cat slip or something now, right? Could be. I have no idea what they call it. I've always heard I it called heard it. hair lip, but I mostly hear about it in medieval sources. Oh, okay. Interesting. Future Mac speaking. The reason past Mac has not heard of this condition outside of medieval texts is because he is not aware that in modern parlance it is instead called cleft lip, or if it extends further back into the head, cleft palate. Until editing this episode, I had not realized that the hair lip I hear mentioned in medieval sources and the cleft palate I hear spoken of in the modern day are in fact the same thing. Uh, But you pound mastic very small, add the white of an egg, and mingle as thou dost vermilion. So if you know how to make vermilion, this is helpful. If you don't... This is not as helpful. Cut with a knife the false edges of the lip, so fast with silk, then smear without and within with the salve, ere the silk rot. If it draw together, arrange it with the hand, anoint again soon. Wow. Yeah, so the reason I wrote this one down is because this is an Anglo-Saxon text describing how to perform cosmetic surgery. Yeah, that's astounding. That is really interesting. And for those who don't know, mastic is an organic tree resin. So you're getting sticky stuff to paste it together and to keep it sealed while it heals. Didn't you say something in an earlier one of these about how egg white has uh, some sort of... No, you were talking about the skin of the egg. Yeah, the skin of the egg. But egg white also itself has its own healing properties to it. And it can, it can bind. It, it acts as a binding agent. So that would keep the mastic together. Basically, cut the lip, sew it back together, put the sticky stuff on it. Hopefully it heals and looks better. That's amazing. You would actually... I think you would actually really help someone's life in that case. They'd be able to speak more if it healed correctly. If it didn't, then... You know, they might die from it, but interesting. That's fantastic. You are apparently supposed to keep checking on it because it says, if it draw together, arrange it with the hand. So like you have to go and nope, that's gone wrong place. Gone wrong. Yeah. Let me pull that back over. Ooh. Well, I mean, that's sort of what you had to do back then. So it says to sew it with silk. Silk. Yeah. Interesting. Silk is very strong. So that would work. I feel like there's also some kind of. There's still a, a thing where silk is good for surgery. I'm going to... Ah! Silk is still used for sutures, surgical sutures. Wow. Well, hey, they got that right. That's amazing. For whatever reason, and I, I'm not going to look into it because I, I, I we've already spent enough time on... <laughs> but apparently that is still the material that we use for this, for surgical sutures. Yeah, that would make sense. Yeah, you'd want to have something that is... I mean, it's organic, it's strong, you can still cut it easily, it would be pretty clean. That's a good one today! Well, we've, we've ranged on quite the, quite the gambit of topics. Yes! That's amazing! Okay. Thank you for listening to The Maniculum. For more geeky editions, or to see our sources and notes, check out our blog, Marginalia, at themaniculumpodcast.com. You can also join our Facebook group, The Maniculum Podcast, to join in on discussions about all things medieval. And feel free to reach out. We're on Twitter, at Maniculum, and on Instagram, at Maniculum Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. 
And special thanks to Sandra Boyle, who created the music for our show. Check out her project, Sugar Glass, on Spotify. 